0: Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for.
1: in just a few taps because when it comes to getting the most out of your home you can do this when you angie that download the free angie mobile app today or visit angie.com that's dot com.
2: right fourth episode i think yeah we've been doing enough episodes to do the intro hello Welcome
3: back to Past Gas by Donut Media. Nice. Yes.
2: Good start. Keep going. I'm I love it. am your host,
3: Nolan Sykes, and joining me as always is one of my best friends.
2: What? James Bumfrey. <laughs> no way. Yeah. I love the energy. It's crazy, right? I love right? that you told people about our relationship, gave some context yep. to our
3: discussion. That's good stuff, right?
2: Yeah. Why don't you catch uh, the audience up on the past few episodes? Because this, right. as you know and I know already- is the fourth part in a four-part series of Ford v Ferrari.
3: All right, okay, so if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, you should probably go do that first before <laughs> you listen to this. But Yeah,
2: you're coming in in the fourth act. If you, <laughs> okay. want, yeah.
3: if you don't have time for that, uh, <laughs> yeah. episode one, we learn about the life of one Enzo Ferrari and his rise to sports car empire. Uh, Very interesting guy. Episode two, we learned about Ford's failed first attempt at beating Ferrari. It was a poop show. Yeah, they tried to buy Ferrari, then they tried to beat him, and they failed. Episode three, uh, we learned about Mr. Carroll Shelby, another one of our favorite automotive figures, and a little bit about his life, and what he did to help Ford try to win again. They failed again. That's okay, because today, we're going to learn about the 1966 running of the 12 Hours Le Mans. I said 12. That's yeah, weird. Wow. Uh, we're going to learn about the 1964 running of the 24 hours of Le Mans. Am I messing 66.
2: up this intro, James? <laughs> yeah, man. You went off book and you
3: totally it. screwed it All up. All right. We're learning about the 1966 running Today of the 24 learning. hours you of Le Mans. No, Get back no, in the back. back seat. No. You get back no, in the back seat. I'm in the driver's seat. <laughs> Past Gas
2: Podcast. It's about cars. It's not about ports. Hey
3: guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show.
2: When we last left off, we had discussed both how an American team had won their first ever Le Mans behind the wheel of a Ferrari, as well as the incredible humiliation suffered by Ford after they failed to even near the finish line With their GT40s. Henry Ford II, a.k.a. Hank
3: Deuce! Hank Deuce was not happy about this situation. He had poured countless dollars and hours into the Le Mans project, and it had let him down yet again.
2: Oh, the little prince. The little prince just threw all the doubloons at the race car. Didn't win.
3: James is not a fan of Hank Deuce. He's like the friggin' Prince Charles of auto racing. I don't know enough about Prince Charles to agree with you, but I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, yeah, he is. He's a real drip. All right, this year, Hank wasn't having it. In the summer of 1965, Henry Ford sent out a card to all the top executives and drivers of the Ford Motor Company. It simply stated,
2: You better win, don't you know? (laughs) Henry Ford, Hank, do's the second, all right?
3: After the humiliation and failure at Le Mans in 1965, everyone knew their job was on fire. The line. If a component failed on a car, everyone in charge of that
2: component and everyone under them would would be be fired. Uh, (laughs) Still bad. Yeah. To make sure that 1966 would be the year that Ford finally brought home the gold, Leo Beebe, Henry's longtime confidant, started the Le Mans committee. (laughs) This seems like a step that should have been taken before they even started. Yeah. And much less after the first year they catastrophically failed at their attempt. The Le Mans committee was a group of roughly 20 men, Hmm. not a lot of diversity, Mm -hmm. I bet they were all white. Mm -hmm. They were the engineering brain trust of the Ford Motor Company. They would meet every two weeks until the race in order to brainstorm ideas (laughs) and solutions that would help Ford finally win at Le Mans.
3: Every two weeks? Yeah. James, how often do we have meetings at Donut?
2: Daily, multiple times a day we have meetings. And we make videos. (laughs) We make friggin' internet (laughs) car videos. We make the videos about the cars, and we barely do it. (laughs) We barely pull it off.
3: And these guys are trying to win. Hey,
2: I don't know if I want to commit to, like, a whole week.
3: (laughs) Let's meet every two weeks. Every
2: two weeks sounds pretty good.
3: I bet it was on, like, a Friday at, like, 4 o'clock.
2: Yeah, I can't make it this week. Yeah. Uh, Sheila and the kids are already up at the lake, and she's going to have my balls on a platter (laughs) if I'm late again. Uh,
3: Okay, Executive Vice President Charles Patterson told B.B., anything you want, let me know. We will gold plate the gearbox if necessary. Seems excessive. The race is only 10 months away by the time the committee was created. It's like they're just like the train is going mm-hmm. and they're just putting the tracks in front of them. They're a multi billion dollar corporation and they can't.
2: Because plan. they say stuff like they're like anything you want, let me know. We'll gold plate the gearbox if necessary. It's, it's like, like gold plating gearbox wouldn't work. <laughs> That would suck, though. would make a crappy gearbox. <laughs> Gold is a ter- terrible oh. metal for a transmission, and the fact that you don't know anything about transmission has been made apparent yeah. over the past two years that your transmission's failed at Le Mans. It's unreal. It's infuriating. I'm sorry. <laughs> Back to the story. <laughs> to complicate things, Henry Ford, Hank Deuce II, decided the best way to ensure victory would be to divide the Le Mans effort into two separate teams one team would be led by carol shelby and the other team would be led by holman moody now moody was the leader of ford's champion stock car team which was currently the fastest nascar outfit in operation this arrangement would pitch shelby against nascar Shelby would be humiliated if Holman proved to be faster, especially since unlike Holman, Shelby had significant experience at Le Mans already. I mean, Shelby had already won yeah. Le Mans.
3: Also, it's, we should uh, clarify, Holman Moody is not a person. It's a team uh, formed by John Holman and- uh,
2: Mad-Eye Moody from <laughs> Harry Potter.
3: <laughs> Ralph, yeah, Ralph Moody. So Ralph
2: Mad-Eye Moody. It's
3: two teams, it's not a man. Uh, Pitting their own men against each other was a strategy Henry Ford II had stolen directly from Enzo Ferrari's own playbook. Almost immediately after the first Le Mans committee meeting, the team flew down to Daytona International Speedway to begin testing. Le Mans team was no longer about competition or rivalry. It was about the survival of everyone involved in the program. Ken Miles, our friend from the previous episode, loved Ken Miles, began lapping cars around the track, blazing around the steeped bank turns and windy hairpins he described as
2: miserable slippy
3: little turns miles would spin out on the turns during testing one of the shelby team members stated
2: i remember some really scary spins he had at daytona but they didn't seem to phase him He's so brave he just kept on going and going like he's not even scared he didn't even
3: have the scary spins the repeated spins uh, they didn't bother miles as the gt40 was finally getting the development and testing it needed and the testing exposed a few near-fatal flaws of the design.
2: The 427 V8 was so large and powerful that turning and decelerating proved to be difficult. The brake fluid would routinely boil, and the half-inch-thick brake rotors would eventually shatter. Scary. The team searched for solutions to the brake failure, but it didn't come in time. By the end of January, the first race of the Big Three had come, the Daytona Continental. By the end of 1965, the Daytona Continental had switched a 12-hour race to a full 24, making it the first ever 24-hour endurance race in America. After the failure at Le Mans, a failure at Daytona would prove to not only be humiliating for Shelby, it would jeopardize his entire career.
3: Ferrari would not be attending this race. The real competition would be between Shelby and the Holman Moody team. Alongside the inter-team rivalries, the tire wars were raging between Firestone and Goodyear. To learn more about Firestone, check out the episode of Up to Speed on the Ford Explorer. Shelby was sponsored by Goodyear, while Holman Moody was sponsored by Firestone. It was no secret which team Ford would have preferred to win based on tires alone. Ford had a long and storied history with Firestone, stemming back from when Harvey Firestone developed tires for the Ford Model T. So it only makes sense for Ford to provide the most support into Moody's team and their Firestone tires. While people were debating the logistics of tire sponsorship, Leo Beebe was not confident. Leo Be- he's he's a little, little Bebe. Bebe. Oh he's so cute. Was not confident the GT forty could even last 24 hours. He stated, We don't even know if our paint can
2: last 24 hours. <laughs>
3: Despite their lack of confidence, the Shelby American cars placed both first and second while moody was trapped multiple laps behind in third place reporters called it one of the most perfectly driven races
2: in history woo.
3: i'm just wondering like if you're reading a newspaper uh-huh. and you're like not really into racing and you see that sentence you're just mm-hmm. like
2: huh? this is how much your job has poisoned your brain <laughs> it, yeah, really? like you're like ah, i don't really know the curiosity gap on that <laughs> headline title for 1965
3: has been poisoned by this uh Occupation.
2: Hey, man, I've proudly been ruining you for the last two and a half years. <laughs> so Ford was riding high on their victory at Daytona. Things were looking up for the GT40 project, but that was quickly about to change. On December 1st, 1965, yeah. a young activist uh-huh. and Harvard grad lawyer named <gasps> Ralph Nader <gasps> had entered the scene and published a book called Unsafe at Any Speed. That doesn't sound good. What a wet blanket. (laughs) From the first
3: line, unsafe at any speed, reads as if it was documenting some sort of
2: religious fanaticism. For over (laughs) half a century, the automobile has brought death, injury, and the most inestimable sorrow and deprivation to millions of people. (laughs) With Madea-like intensity, this mass trauma began rising sharply four years ago, reflecting new and unexpected ravages by the motor vehicle. Ralph Nader
3: was calling out automakers around the world while specifically targeting the big three, Ford, Chevy, and Dodge. And it was well-deserved. When it came to safety, these companies, uh, they were failing their customers without the customers even realizing it. In February of 1966, only 2 months after the book was released, President Johnson announced the crisis of death on the highway. It was the biggest crisis outside of
2: Vietnam. Of course he was. He was like actually <laughs> yeah, turns <right>. out <laughs> Vietnam isn't that bad. It's cars. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fair point. Uh,
3: American automakers had a big problem on their hands as people needed someone to blame. After all, only four years earlier in 1962, Henry Ford II had publicly destroyed a copy of the destroyed safety resolution. Thank deuce. Coincidentally, that was the exact same time that Nader claimed automotive-related injuries and death began to spike on our nation's roadways.
2: It's like he destroyed like, an ancient talisman yeah. and he's like, oh, what's this old book? And then it just—it's like a mummy wakes yeah. up.
3: <laughs> As we'll come back later in the episode, Ralph Nader published his book at a time when the general consensus was filled with mistrust in the government and society in general. The '60s were a batshit time, and that would lead to a lot of eyes on Ford, specifically the Le Mans racing effort. Surprisingly, though, in the three years since the Ford versus Ferrari rivalry began. There had been no injuries or deaths behind the wheel of a Ford Le Mans car, but Ford's luck was about to run out, and Nader made sure that the timing could not have been worse.
2: On March 26, 1966, the 12 hours of Sebring began. Carroll Shelby had only one rule for his team, no racing each other. Despite only having to follow a single rule, the Ford racers refused to listen, ignoring pit signals to slow down and continuing to push both themselves and their cars.
3: Remember, like Shelby
2: and Holman Moody, they are in the same team, but they want the credit. In the same team. Yeah. Quotes. Quotes. Nice. At a time when safety was on the forefront of everyone's minds, the outcome of this race could not have been worse. Canadian racer Bob McLean. McLean? McLean? Canadian racer Bob McLean had flown off the track and wrapped his GT40 around a telephone pole, causing his car to burst into flames. He was the first to be killed behind the wheel of a GT40. A collision between Mario Andretti's Ferrari and Porsche later in the race sent the Porsche directly into the spectator stands, killing five. The violent race caused a spotlight to shine down, not only on Ford, but of the safety of racing as a whole. Companies and racing events alike were starting to begin to feel the heat From the public outrage.
3: Despite the tragedy, though, the race continued with Dan Gurney leading in the number two Ford, followed closely by Ken Miles in the number one. Gurney led the race until the very end, where his engine decided to give up the ghost just a few hundred yards from the finish. Ken Miles rocketed past Gurney and took the checkered flag, giving him the first place victory at two of three major events in 1966. So he won. Oh, he won at Daytona as well. Correct? -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Gurney was left pushing his car to the finish line, which actually led to him being disqualified from the race. Uh, I believe the cars have to cross under their own power. Mm. Where was Ferrari during this race, you might ask? Well, Ferrari decided that Sebring would be the perfect place to debut their new Le Mans racer, the Ferrari
2: 330P3, and the Ferrari Dino. Now, guys. I named my son after my father, but I called him my brother's name. That's right. (laughs)
3: So weird. Uh, if you guys haven't seen pictures of the 330 P3, James, how about you Google that right now? Ferrari 330 P3. It's honestly one of the best looking cars It's one of ever. the best
2: looking cars it's I've ever seen. Beautiful.
3: Unfortunately, Ferrari, both of their experimental designs failed and shredded their transmissions long before the finish line. When Ferrari team leader Gozzi reported the news back to Enzo, Enzo said,
2: Yes, 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 yes I see what a nice Easter you gave me. Enzo, you're not even like religious. You didn't even get me no eggs. And there was <laughs> no bunny. I didn't even get that fake little chicken and marshmallow. The chicken and marshmallow, the poops. <laughs> I didn't get any of that.
3: Uh, All so- you
2: did was make my cars a transmissions break.
3: I'm sorry, man. Just after Sebring was the start of the Le Mans test weekend. A handful of cars were airlifted to France almost immediately after the race had finished. Of course, Ken Miles was present to test them. He knew everything about the car. And at the unlikely age of 47, he knew the GT40 would be what would give him a victory at Le Mans.
2: Miles was repeatedly cracking speeds of over 200 miles per on the track, and that was upsetting fellow test driver and veteran racer Walt Hansgen, who was also present. Hansgen was intent on proving he could keep up with Miles' blistering speed, despite repeatedly being told to slow down. While flying down the Molson Strait, Hansgen hit a wet spot on the track and began to hydroplane. Fishtailing across the track, Hansgen plowed into a sandbank, causing the GT40 to cartwheel end over end. He was trapped within an almost unrecognizable wreck. During the test weekend of 1966, Surtees set the fastest lap time yet again in the 330 P3 hanskin succumbed to his injuries just five days later at an army hospital in the nearby city of orleans at a time when safety was so important to the public eye ford was completely screwing everything up not a good look we'll be right back with more of this story but first a word from our sponsors
1: in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
3: A few days after the tragedies at Sebring, John Wire, aka Mr. Aston Martin, was present at the Monza racetrack in Italy, testing some backup Fords that would certainly pose no threat to Ferrari. Although Wire had a strong presence at the beginning of Ford's Le Mans effort, by 1966 he had faded into the background. Coincidentally that same day though, Enzo himself was also attending vehicle testing and recognized Wire. Ferrari introduced himself to Wire and the Ford executive who had accompanied him to the track. It was the first time since the failed business deal of 1963 that Enzo had spoken with a Ford executive face-to-face. I'd like you to know, Mr. Ferrari, that we at Ford have a great respect for you. I (laughs)
2: know. Anyway.
3: Ferrari had not experienced an international rivalry as large and intense as the ford Lamar rivalry since the days of Nuvolari and Hitler's silver arrows that kind of destroyed everyone in the Mm -hmm. 30s. But luckily, Enzo knew exactly how to sway the media in his favor. Rumors had been circulating that the French Ministry of Interior was considering canceling Le Mans due to safety concerns.
2: Both Ford and Ferrari cars had starring roles in multiple large blockbusters at the time. John Frankenheimer's Grand Prix focused on Ferrari race cars during a fictionalized race, while the GT40 and Mustang were the primary focus of the Golden Globe-winning French film, Un homme et une femme. It was obvious that despite the safety concerns, people still idolized race car drivers as the epitome of masculinity. Both Ferrari and Ford had been receiving swarms of positive media attention, and Ferrari knew how to use that to his advantage. Enzo published an article in the Italian Auto Sprint magazine accepting his defeat at Le Mans before the race even began. He said, We know that nothing is being done to resist the steamroller of the Americans. Who will find road open to success in sports car racing? We fought on the track with autos and at the table against the abuse of power in the regulations. Even while continually winning races, I understood that we were gradually losing them. We intensified our activity to the utmost, but we managed simply to slow down the approach of the steamroller. The battle was a lost in advance.
3: Some nice reverse psychology.
2: Yeah, he's like, hey, sucks that all these guys are dying, but you know what really sucks? Is when the Americans showed up and made me... Push my cars to the limit. Mm -hmm.
3: It's a shame.
2: I know, guys, I know. Sorry, I'm a hero. It's like you're the one making the cars, you dillweed. Enzo placed himself in the position
3: of the underdog. After all, Henry Ford, too, had done nothing but buy them off. frankly. It was Enzo Ferrari who still held a real passion and a real love for the race, after all. He knew that by being the underdog he would help save the reputation of his company and shame Ford's entire racing effort in the case that Ferrari did
2: lose at Le Mans. I know, they suck, man. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take a little step back and talk about Ralph Nader. By the time Ferrari had admitted defeat to the media, Nader's took Nader's, Nader's book, book was still less than 6 months old and it had obviously managed to dig itself deep into the American psyche. Ooh digging deep unsafe at any speed was released at a time when paranoia was rampant in america the space race was at its peak russia had just launched their first satellite to orbit the moon and a full moon landing was only two years away the cold war Brought along the Red Scare as well as terrifying nuclear tensions. There were UFO sightings. There were race riots. Druggies and hippies were integrating themselves into popular culture. John Lennon had just claimed that his band was more popular than Jesus. Think of the children. America was changing and the people were finally opening their eyes and beginning to question society around them. The Vietnam War had taught us to ask, can we trust our government? Unsafe at any speed taught us to ask, can we trust our cars? While everything else that was happening in the 60s helped open America's eyes, it was Nader's story that really struck a chord with the people. Despite who you were or what you believed in, almost every American at the time owned a car. The issue of safety played a direct role in everyone's lives. The moment to enforce safety regulations on companies had begun to gain traction. Senate hearings over the issue began to expose the ugly truth hidden behind the Motor City. As Lee Iacocca once said, "Hey, f-ing safety doesn't <laughs> sell, you prick."
3: Ralph Nader was
2: reportedly. What are you? What are you? A baby? Safety doesn't sell. Here's a lollipop.
3: <laughs> Ralph Nader was uh, repeatedly stalked and threatened, especially by employees of the of these uh, car companies. The threats to his physical safety led to the FBI getting involved in his protection. Of course, Nader was able to use these threats to his advantage and further his cause. Enzo Ferrari published another article. This time in the French magazine's, uh, how do you pronounce that? Le Europio.
2: Le Europio.
3: Le Europio. <laughs> Le Europio. Le, uh, he, Le- was def- <laughs> he was defending his position against the group. Le Europio. Been-,
2: been given the nickname the Safety Crusaders. Enzo wrote. A thorough survey on this thorny subject shows that most accidents occur for reasons which have nothing to do with speed, but rather careless driving. Basically, he's blaming the dead guys. Yeah. Because dead men tell no tale.
3: Much like his competitor Enzo Ferrari, Henry Ford II was not that apologetic over his company's lacking safety either. In fact, he got rather defensive.
2: We are being attacked on all sides, and we feel these attacks are unwarranted, don't you know? Naturally, when 50,000 people a year are killed on the roads in the U.S., this is a bad situation, don't you know? On the other hand, to blame it solely on the automobile is, you know, very unfair, don't you know? We have a fellow called Nader. I don't think he knows very much about automobiles don't you know and i hope you know that congress will consider the problems that they may face in the automobile industry you know in depth before they pass a law if they do something irrational don't you know they can upset the economy that would be bad (laughs)
3: Henry II was more focused on discrediting Nader and protecting his financial interests than addressing basic safety requirements that were not being met on the road. Despite continued dismissal by automotive manufacturers, Senate hearings continued to be held over the matter. Congress soon enacted what would become the National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act of 1966. This would be the first time the government had ever imposed any sort of regulation on the automotive Industry safety was now the hottest buzzword in Detroit. Yet, despite the controversies surrounding the company, Henry Ford second was still officially invited to the thirty-fourth Le Mans Grand Prix de Endurance to serve as honorary Grand Marshal.
2: I bet he paid to do that.
3: I think so as well.
2: He's like, "Hey, don't you know? I'll give you a bunch of money if you make me the Grand Marshal." No, like, such a wimp move! Like you can't win. You know, maybe I'll be the Grand
3: Marshal. Maybe I'll be the face of the race, huh? Yeah. Uh, Ferrari and Ford basically took the official positions regarding safety of screw it. We're going to race anyway. What are you going to do about it? Try and stop us. Hey, didn't think so.
2: While all of this was going on, engineers throughout Dearborn, Michigan, hurried to meet deadlines in their laboratories as the race day neared. Every eventuality at Le Mans had to be thoroughly considered and addressed. There were apparently multiple nervous breakdowns and early retirements among team members due to all this stress. All of the races and brainstorming sessions had led to this. The final production of a fleet of Ford racing cars. The expected fleet of eight cars represented what was probably the most sophisticated study of an automobile that had ever gone down.
3: Yeah, I think that's something we got to keep in mind is like this, like, I feel like Ferrari is more like the spirit of racing, mm-hmm. you know, in the story. And then Ford it's all about like the science you know yeah like, is- yeah it's
2: like in rocky um oh, yeah. rocky 4 4 yeah where uh rocky like is training in the snow yeah and lifting uh chopping wood chopping logs yeah yeah and drago is just like getting punched in the stomach yeah. by a robot <laughs> yeah. but ferrari is rocky yeah and ford is drago yeah i dude at the beginning of this series You told me that I might come around on Ferrari? Mm -hmm. I'm starting to. I think you might reverse. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, back to the show. (laughs) Engineers examined the fleet extensively, making modifications wherever they could to boost performance. Alterations to the combustion chambers were made that were so small they were invisible to the naked eye. Those minute operations unearthed another 35 horsepower. Woo! woo. More power, you, baby. More power, baby! My power, baby! My power, baby! Electrical wire was insulated and protected up to 275 degrees Fahrenheit, and all the switches and bulbs were borrowed directly from Ford's heavy-duty truck line. Even the windshield wipers were taken seriously as the entire system was pulled directly from a Boeing 707 geared to sweep at speeds at up to 115 sweeps per minute. That's, all that's more than a single sweep a second. Oh. Are you aware that the Boeing 707 is an airplane?
3: Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, that's an airplane.
2: Transmission engineers, remember, this was the weak point in the previous big, cars. Big weak spot. Big weak spot. Both times, both years. This is third time's the try. Transmission engineers worked to iron out every detail possible. A team of two drivers would spend a total of 3.6 hours at a time in the act of simply rowing through the gears some 9,000 times. Jeez. Engineers within Ford's Reliability Labs were trying to solve the issues with the brakes. The frisbee-sized brakes had to absorb a total of 12 million 597,900 pound feet of kinetic energy every lap oh my and God. cope with temperatures that spiked over 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Unreal to deal with the wear and tear that would eventually destroy the rotors. A quick change system was designed by the Shelby American team that would take a skilled pit crew a single minute. To change out all the brakes during the race. That's insane. Dude, this sounds like. Yeah. There's like, oh, we're gonna get it this they're year. They're finally taking it seriously. Yeah, finally. They're like the mighty ducks. So like, turns out we do have to practice. Yeah. yeah
3: that's what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the flagship of the entire development operation was hidden away in test room 17D deep within Ford's engineering and research complex. It was nicknamed the Indoor Laboratory Le Mans. Inside, a 427 Ford engine was connected to a special new testbed that had been developed by General Electric <sighs> for millions of dollars. The system was rigged to what was, at the time, a highly advanced computer. The team had programmed the exact engine speeds and gear shift patterns used by Ken Miles during the Le Mans test weekend. Yeah! James, the computer would then drive... They built a sim! Yeah, would drive through a near exact simulation to test the endurance of the engine. A console that appeared to be straight out of Star Trek, which premiered that same year, mind you, housed the controls for the simulation. Every two hours, a technician would press a cycle button that would simulate a pit stop. Every time the engine failed the endurance test, they would completely disassemble the engine and do a full inspection. Then they would put it back together and do it all over again, they would not stop testing until the injured can survive not one but two full 24 hours of Lama simulations in a row. Sick, that's 48 hours of Lamar. That's that's crazy. During a cocktail party, Ken Miles was asked by a guest if they could ever become a race car driver. To which Miles responded, That's up to you, sir, isn't it? <laughs> what a badass response! <laughs> yeah,
2: dude, it's like uh, one time I was at a show in Louisville. And Jim James, the lead singer of My Morning Jacket, they're from Louisville, and he's just like local, coolest guy in the world. And I looked at him, and I recognized him, and I was like, you're Jim James, aren't you? And he goes, sometimes. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah. it's
3: <laughs> badass. Later at the same party, when he was asked about his chances, Miles said, I feel our chances at Le Mans are pretty good. These cars are
2: built for Le Mans. <laughs> cool, dude. Yeah, dude.
3: Everyone on the Ford team knew that they had built a winning car that year, and everyone knew Ferrari's days were numbered. Things were finally
2: looking up for Ford, but how were things going over at Ferrari? Terrible. <laughs> Ferrari was keeping up with its reputation of being filled with rampant infighting. Enzo Ferrari was looking for replacements for champion driver John Surtees. The Ferrari team manager, Ghazi, had made a very serious accusation against Surtees. He claimed that Surtees had shared design secrets during his time at Lola International. While Enzo seriously doubted the validity of these accusations, Surtees was a ticking time bomb. He constantly was getting into disagreements with the rest of the team, and he vehemently hated his team manager, Gazi. There was no guarantee that Enzo would be able to maintain control over him. He had to go.
3: Wow. Enzo had turned his attention towards Mario Andretti, a young driver who had only just fallen into the international spotlight by winning the Indy 500 with a record speed of 165.899 miles per hour. To
2: both Nolan and I have ridden in an Indy car with Mario Andretti.
3: It's crazy, that's, I don't know man, you think about that sometimes and it's like, wow.
2: Yeah, I like, sometimes I'll stumble across the picture of me and him. I'm just like, that's so sick, yeah. I saw him in his underpants. (laughs) I didn't
3: get to, lucky. I paid extra. (laughs) 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 To Ferrari, Andretti looked to be the next Surtees, but hopefully a Surtees he would be able to maintain more control over. The weekend before Le Mans, Ferrari had arranged to announce the immediate firing of John Surtees. Enzo was to announce this at the end of the Belgian Grand Prix on June 12th. But unfortunately for Andretti, Surtees actually won the Belgian Grand Prix and Enzo, was once again driven by his pure instinct to win, he decided to keep Surtees. <laughs> he was deciding to keep Surtees on the team and suspend the announcement until after Le Mans. Final preparations had begun for both teams. People braced for what they expected to be the most dangerous and lethal Le Mans of all time. This racetrack is a cornfield airstrip in the jet age. It will be a miracle if no one gets killed, stated the Detroit News on june seventeenth, nineteen sixty six.
2: Is that the same track as it was back then?
3: The same location. The same the Mosson Strait is still the same road. But there's I think they added there's that chicane before the finish line. I don't think that was there. But it's essentially the
2: same. Yeah. Crazy. For Ford, the talent pool for the race was severely limited. In a single unfortunate weekend, a handful of crashes had forced the Ford Motor Company to fall short on a number of drivers. On June 4th, racer A.J. Foyt, who had been contacted to race in Le Mans, had an unfortunate incident regarding his race car and a wall. His car burst into flames, and he had to crawl through the fire to get out of the wreckage. He's quoted as saying, I knew I had to do it or I would burn up in there. That's insane. He suffered major burns to his hands and the side of his face. So he was out of the race. Mm-hmm. That same day, Ken Miles' teammate, Roy- Lloyd Ruby, who the we talked about. Lloyd Ruby. Lloyd Ruby, who we talked about in the last episode, went down in a plane crash right outside of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Airport and suffered a fractured spine. It's crazy that he survived. Phil Hill also had a falling out with Ford Management and signed on with another team, none other than the Chaparral team run by Jim Hall. The same team that had humiliated Carroll Shelby a year earlier. Chaparral. If the Chaparral beat Ford, especially with an ex-Ford driver, it would go down as one of the most embarrassing races in Ford's history. And Ford has had a lot <laughs> of yeah. embarrassing They've races. They've been
3: embarrassed twice now. Yeah. This Basically, their
2: whole racing history has been a big embarrassment.
3: Yeah. Leo Beebe needed drivers. Leo Beebe. Leo Beebe. But to his surprise, most drivers refused to race no matter how much money was offered simply because it was so dangerous. At the last minute, Ford reached out to Mario Andretti, who signed on because he put it,
2: Money talks, what else can I say? Is that how he, that's not how he sounds. Yeah, he talks like this. <laughs> money talks, what can I say?
3: I'll allow it. There was only one hiccup to signing on Andretti. He was contracted with Firestone Tires, which meant he would have to race with Holman Moody.
2: The atmosphere before the race was intense, to say the least, as Shelby, a master wordsmith, so wisely put, win or lose, I'm flying home on Monday, and I'm going to hide for a while where no Ford man or French man can find me. Because to tell you the truth, I'm sick of both the Ford mans and the French mans. (laughs) I cook up a batch of chili and
3: eat a chicken. (laughs) We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors
0: Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for.
3: When Hank the Deuce and his family touched down in Paris, you'd have thought it was the second coming of Jesus Christ. Henry had $100 million stashed away for some plans to build a Ford factory in France so the French leaders were trying their best to get their hands on some of that sweet, sweet American moolah. Mm. Mm, give me that moolah. The Ford team set up operations in an old Peugeot garage near the track. Inside, the garage was the size of a football field, but Despite the massive size, it was soon filled with over 100 team members, the eight cars Ford had entered the race, and lots of support equipment. Bruce McLaren arrived at the garage and was absolutely stunned at the current size of the operation. He had been one of the first drivers hired by Ford when this whole thing began in 1963. As one can imagine, he probably looked at the cars and said something along the lines of, wow, wow.
2: (laughs) Throughout the past few years, McLaren had been cementing his reputation outside of Le Mans as one of the most innovative engineers and racers in the world. He had just launched his own Formula One team only one month earlier under the moniker McLaren. Simple. McLaren was not afraid to put his life on the line, especially in a race. In fact, he had recently published his biography where he basically wrote his own epitaph. To do something well is so worthwhile that to die trying to do it better cannot be foolhardy. It would be a waste of life to do nothing with one's ability, for I feel that life is measured in achievement, not in years alone. I love that. Yeah. Didn't he have had another great quote in the first episode?
3: Yeah, I I can't remember.
2: I think he said something like, (laughs) that
3: car's faster than a shit-through a goose. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, McLaren was invited back to the Ford team, and despite being contracted to Firestone Tires, Shelby believed that his expertise was so critical to the future of this team That he still managed to bring McLaren onto the Shelby American side once more. So he probably just, like, hey, I know you're contracted to Firestone. Screw that. Yeah. Come race for me.
2: And McLaren's like, all right. He's like, yeah, I just started my own F1 team. Yeah. Sort of, mate. Let's (laughs) give him one more go.
3: Uh, He was confident in Ford and attributing the failure in 65 purely to stubborn laziness on the part of Ford, which I think all of us listening can agree with. As the Kiwi put it,
2: We're not screwing around like that again. We're going to go for
3: it. While Shelby and his Ford team were contracting some of the top racers from around the world, things were not going nearly as well back at Ferrari. Searchies knew the race was going to be tough.
2: Mechanically, our cars are well-engineered, and they can be driven at 99%. The thing is, if you got racers at Ford, real racers, real racers,
3: Fueled by self-doubt and his own driving ability as uh-huh. well as the rest of his team, <laughs> the world began to cave in on Jim, John Surtees.
2: When Surtees approached his car, he noticed a third driver's name on the window. As it turned out, the Ferrari team manager had assigned another driver to Surtees's position as the hare in the race. The hare is a designated driver who's meant to drive as fast as possible in the beginning of the race, pushing the competitors' engines to their breaking point as they tried to keep up. Pretty cool. Now, Surtees was by far the most qualified for this position, as he was one of the fastest drivers in the world. But the Ferrari team manager, Dragoni seemed to disagree. The two had been feuding for years at this point, and the Mall, 1966, their rivalry would reach a boiling point.
3: Ooh, bubble over.
2: So Surtees, he issues an ultimatum. He would either run as the hare or he would not run at all. I am the fastest man on this team. Whatever is behind this, you the best count me out. Well, uh. Dragoni had spent <laughs> years trying to
3: get Sirtis off the team, and not allowing Sirtis to race was the final push Serchies needed to call it quits for good. He immediately exited the pits and went directly to the Ferrari headquarters and cut all ties with Ferrari. In the media, it was known as the divorce of Surtees and Ferrari. These headlines are kind of lame sometimes. This bitter end for Surtees would prove to be a massive benefit, though, for the Ford teams, as now the best Ferrari driver in the world was out of the race indefinitely.
2: It's worth mentioning. That before the race began, our boy Roy Lunn was standing at a urinal in the restroom when all of a sudden Henry the Ford second aka Hank the Deuce, Deuce approached him while he was still peeing. <laughs> well, Roy, do you think we're gonna win, don't you know? And Roy said, I think so. We've got a good shot. Normal conversation. Normal to have conversation with your Hey, looks head. like you need you got a good shot right there. Got pee-pee <laughs> all over your pants, little baby. Race day began with the threat of rain. Crews were busy changing from dry to wet tires in anticipation of the worst. Despite the poor weather forecast, hundreds of thousands of crowd members descended on the racetrack. There was only one rule that Shelby had for his team. There was to be no inner team competition. He means it this time. Hank Deuce once again went around handing everyone the same cards he handed them 10 months earlier. He handed everyone business cards that said, you better win HF2. Hey guys, just in case you don't remember that thing I did, that real passive aggressive thing I did earlier, I'm doing it again. I hate this, dude. I hate I him. hate this. I hate him. It's like if fuck, business cards. It's like if we walked around to like all the editors yeah, it's like, hey. and we are like,
3: wheelhouse is coming out monday <laughs> 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 better win a better get a mill but you're not even saying it you walk up yeah, to like give him a card, colby and you just give him a card colby looks up i like
2: Duck. i hit him up on slack <laughs> it's called the threat channel on slack it's just like hey colby check the threat channel you Ugh. better get it's a. it's just so gross dude it's not like this guy's won a ton of races no he hasn't won any
3: you want to race for me? You better win. You
2: better win. You've never fucking won anything, you dork. You almost bankrupted the biggest company in the world that your grandpa started because you named a car after your dad, you dweeb. Uh, at four p.m.,
3: the flag dropped, but this time it was dropped by the deuce himself. Each racer sprinted across the pavement as fast as their legs could carry them. Immediately. <laughs> 10 miles was struck by bad luck. As he leapt into his seat, he slammed his helmet on the door frame and bent it. He was forced bent the door frame, not his door- helmet. Yeah, the yeah. door frame. He bent the door frame with his head. He was forced into the pits after only one lap to fix the issue, which put him behind all the other racers.
2: Of course, as is Le Mans tradition, the rain began almost immediately. McLaren came in at 5.33 p.m. complaining about his tires. Apparently, chunks of his tires were being torn off by the track. Shelby, of course, immediately realized the issue lied with McLaren's Firestone tires, as none of his Goodyear tires were having issues. McLaren was invited to join the dark side and betray Firestone to race on a clean new set of Goodyear's, which, of course, he did. He returned to the pit at 6.47 p.m. with a grin on his face. McLaren was repeatedly reaching speeds in excess of 220-plus miles per hour on the Molson Strait on those great Goodyear tires. This episode of Past Gas is brought to you by Goodyear, Goodyear tires.
3: tires. Again, these things are tin cans. Going uh, 220. Yeah,
2: yeah. In, the in the rain. In the rain. In the rain. And their helmets are made out of what? It's insane. Paper mache, I assume. Yeah.
3: I don't know. It's like, I think it's just worth... Reflecting on how brave these guys are, right?
2: I mean, like people sort of complain about racing being boring yeah. nowadays. But the reason it's quote unquote boring nowadays is because back we're yeah. talking about here, and for like twenty years after this, it was just so dangerous.
3: Dudes died all the time.
2: All the time, yeah. dudes died. Like Ayrton Senna died during a race. And in imagine the late eighties. Yeah, in the late eighties. Or no, no,
3: nineties, right?
2: It was ninety-two. Yeah, or ninety-four maybe.
3: Ninety-four, I believe. Yeah. yeah.
2: So that's like if Michael Jordan. Went up to dunk a basketball and died. Yeah, and then later in that same game, another, another guy, guy died. died. Yeah, they didn't even stop the game after Michael Jordan, the greatest player to ever play the game, dies. They keep playing, and then another guy That's dies, insane. and then they keep they go and do the next game. So like wow. any guy who's like racing is boring. It's like you go race a car, you jerk. Yeah. While the Fords possessed
3: superior speeds, the Ferraris had continued to remain within striking distance. There are
2: other reasons that racing
3: is boring, man. The Ferraris had continued uh, to remain within striking distance the entire race, as the little red cars were more nimble and efficient than the GT40. At about midnight, rain began to fill the darkness. Shelby and the Ford suits were forced to take shelter in a dimly lit corridor behind the grandstands <laughs> to avoid the rain. Ugh, it's wet. They paced the dimly lit hall like expectant fathers in a hospital waiting room uh, while Ford and I'm high- gonna
2: be in the room with my wife. yeah I'm gonna cut the umbilical cord with my teeth like a
3: bear sweet. Uh, While Ford had high hopes for new racer Mario Andretti, his GT40 blew a head gasket after only 97 laps.
2: Hey, whatever happens, happens, you know. (laughs) Wasn't meant to be.
3: The Chaparral, driven by Phil Hill with its Chevy power plant, lost its headlights and was removed from the race. At 3 a.m., news came over the loudspeaker that the Ferrari 330 P3, driven by Pedro Rodriguez and Richie Ginther, had shredded its gearbox. The P3 had been the greatest threat to Ford, and now it's out of the race.
2: By 3 a.m., Ferrari was practically out of the race. The Shelby American team led the first three positions. Every Ferrari that had any chance to compete was gone, and only one of Moody's GT40s were still in the race, and it was nowhere near the front. The GT40s... Shelby's GT40s. Shelby's GT40s were performing phenomenally. The only issue the cars experienced were due to the brakes which were easily replaced due to the quick change system designed by the Shelby team. There was a huge debate on the legality of such a system as it would have taken hours to replace those rotors by a normal mechanic. But in the end, the system was approved. So, so Hank, the deuce and his family, Mrs. Deuce and Edsel Deuce themselves approached Shelby in the Ford pits. They were going to win the race. That was certain. At this point, the only decision left was how, they were going to win
3: this race. The deuce and his suits turned to Shelby and asked how he thought this sh- story should end.
2: Well, hell, Ken's been leading for all these hours. He should win the race. But Leo Beebe had Little a different idea on Beebe had a different idea Little in mind. I kind of like to see all three of them cross the finish line together. You fucking fuck you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Shelby, of course, is a man of strong opinions, never being one to back down and an opportunity to challenge authority. Shelby said, oh, oh, hell, let's do it that way then. (laughs) (laughs) Miles was instructed to allow McLaren to catch up as he was only one lap behind. But Miles was furious at this. To him, allowing McLaren to catch up would discredit the incredible racing that Miles had just done. Miles started the race significantly behind due to his bent door issue and was about to end it one lap ahead of second place. He was pissed, throwing his sunglasses across the pit, shouting,
2: So is my contribution to this
3: bloody motor race? Shelby knew exactly what Miles was going through and tactfully calmed him down by saying, I don't know what they told you,
2: but you won't be fired for winning Le Mans. It was decided Fair. that the race would end in a dead heat. All top three positions crossed at the same time. Miles, was so lame. So, it's so lame, dude. It's so disrespectful. Like to to your own team to yeah. Lamar as a, and it's like, it's so dumb. I
3: mean, it's like cool. But once you, like, learn more-
2: It's cool if you're friends. Yeah. If, like, you're friends (laughs) and you're in first place and you're like, you know what, buddy? Come up here. Yeah. But no, it's like the guy who has the least amount to do with it is like, "Uh, you know what? Actually, let's all go across in the flying V. Yeah. (laughs) You don't even know how to skate.
3: (laughs) Like, it's Mighty Ducks. Yeah. You don't
2: even know how to skate, you dick.
3: Yeah. That's hilarious. Also,
2: Miles is, like, the only guy who's stuck with Ford this entire time of and he's my favorite anybody. yeah
3: i think my favorite figure in this story yeah like, he's, it is the story yeah. for
2: him to win it yeah that's what's like so infuriating about hank deuce and these other dorks from ford where it's like you have the story yeah the guy who's been driving for you all three years i oh, don't know that was mclaren ken miles is new
3: ken, he's newish but new like he's he's helped the most um he's just, sounds
2: he's like just a good so guy. like <laughs> so lame yeah I know I said if you don't win, then you're all fired. Yeah. But (laughs) let's all do it together now. Because teamwork makes the dream work.
3: He, like, makes them put their hands out the window and, like, (laughs) grab. I don't know.
2: Miles was set on winning, though. And rightfully so. He'd won at Daytona and Sebring. Victory. And LeMal would give him a triple victory at the three most prestigious races in the world. Miles would be the first driver to ever be awarded the Triple Crown. While they all crossed at the same time, it was obvious to everyone that Miles should have earned his triple crown that day. But a stipulation in the rules cheated him out of the victory. If the race ended in a dead heat, the driver who started
3: farther back in the position would be given the victory. Unfortunately for Miles, that means Bruce McLaren and his teammate Chris Amon started eight meters further behind Ken Miles, which means in the dead heat, Miles placed second to Bruce McLaren, by roughly 20 feet.
2: Ah! The team in the pit knew this, but refrained from telling the drivers as they were focused more on the photo finish than Ken Miles' triple victory. Even then, the team still attempted to appeal the official rules and argued that Ken Miles would have been handed the checkered flag. At the end of the race, confusion dominated the event. No one was certain who had actually won the race. When Miles approached the podium under the impression that he had won, he was turned away. It wasn't until minutes later that it became clear that McLaren and Amon were the official victors of the 1966 24 Hours of Le Mans. Despite having officially won, McLaren and Amon certainly didn't feel like winners. They stood and stared awkwardly at the crowd surrounding them. They had not intended to win this way. They had hoped to earn their win. But that did not matter to the race officials. Bruce McLaren and Chris Amon logged 3,009.6 miles at an average speed of 131 miles per hour. As far as the officials were concerned, they had won Le Mans. And to the public, Ford had finally completed what they set out to do. Beat Ferrari. The Deuce, despite rarely showing emotions in public, smiled. And imagine what looks like the Terminator attempting to smile, only if the Terminator were made out of ham and mayonnaise and not synthetic skin over titanium alloy. Ken Miles stood alone in the rain. He had been screwed by technicality. His triple crown victory was gone, cheated from him by a silly rule and a bunch of jerks. When Miles finally met with McLaren in the pits, they stared at each other for a moment. Oh, man, stare down. Finally, Miles grabbed McLaren and gave him a great big hug. At that moment, the rules didn't matter to either racer. They had both done their best, and McLaren was the winner. What a great guy. Good guy. Deserved to win. After the race, Miles pleaded with reporters, please be careful how you report what I said. I work for these people. They've been awfully good to me. The journalists were prepared to tear into Ford for allowing their champion driver to be cheated out of his own win by a technicality, but they largely refrained from doing so, thanks to Miles' request. He then walked into the rain, And evaporated, (laughs) never to be seen
3: again. But of course, Henry the Deuce was not done. During an interview after the race, he said, We don't want to buy
2: Ferrari anymore,
3: don't you know? (laughs) Now who we fear most are the Japanese. This statement really cemented the fact that Henry Ford was in the race not because he appreciated the true spirit of racing, but he was in it for the money. He was not concerned with trampling over the little guy in order to get his way, he had finished dominating the Italians, and now he set his sights on the Japanese markets. Construction for the next iteration of Ford Lamont project began almost immediately. Ford allocated $10 million. Oh, my.
2: Okay. Yeah, I know.
3: I know. $10 million. I know. Just a reminder, they only offered Ferrari $700,000 a year. So stupid. To the 1967 racing effort, only two months after Lamont, Ken Miles began testing the newest car, dubbed the, the J-Car. J-Car. Hey, you're listening to J-Car and the Pig in the Morning. Hey, in the California desert. Testing had been going smoothly on August 17th, 1966. Ken had spent the morning tearing up Riverside's lap records in the new car, when all of a sudden, the car veered sharply to the right and took flight as it tumbled down a 10-foot embankment. The violent sound of twisting and bending metal ended with a final impact that caused the wreck to explode into flames. First responders were almost immediately on the scene. They found Ken laying on his back over 15 feet away from the car. The crash was so violent that his seatbelt had been torn from its mount, ejecting him from the cockpit as the force of the accident slammed his body into the ground at incredible speed. It was obvious to the responders that he had been killed on impact. One of the most tragic parts of the accident was unfolding in the grandstands. Miles' son, Peter, had been attending the testing that day and was there to witness the horrific accident. I remember seeing the car burning, but I didn't see my dad. Headlines around the world were filled with one simple
2: phrase. Ken Miles is dead. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Final investigations determined that the car had behaved as if the wheels on one side locked up, meaning that driver error was entirely out of the question. Shelby made a final statement regarding the accident, still visibly shaken from what he had witnessed. We really don't know what caused it car just disintegrated we have nobody to take his place nobody he was our baseline our garden point he was the backbone of our program that's so sad
3: you you gotta finish it
2: there'll never be another ken miles
3: (laughs) damn dude
2: this shit's fucking sad yeah
3: to this day the cause of the accident that killed ken miles has never been determined but What has been determined is that Ken Miles was cheated out of his triple crown in 1966 and would never have the opportunity to complete it. Many people regard the Ford Ferrari rivalry as the golden age for auto racing, and that might be true. The amount of money and talent poured into development of the world's greatest race car alone changed the way Le Mans and the world viewed racing forever. If it hadn't been for Henry Ford's passionate hatred for Enzo Ferrari, racing as a whole would have likely struggled to keep up with the changing technological environment around them. Ford helped bring racing into the modern age, creating new methods of testing and design that would change the automotive landscape forever.
2: The end. I still like Carroll Shelby. Yeah. I like Ken Miles a lot. Yeah. He is cool. Still don't like Enzo. Really? I just I just think he's a baby now and he's- I
3: so emotional it's just like yeah.
2: it's taken like some power away from him for me mm-hmm. where he's not just like the evil empire guy he's just kind of a whiny little he's brat. an
3: evil empire guy that also go- is just way too dramatic
2: yeah and he's got like not that big of an empire so he's not even like that impressive hank deuce is the worst character in automotive I, history yeah what a freaking dork the worst he's like a little league coach Yeah, he takes credit for the championship. And poor,
3: poor Ken Miles, man.
2: Poor Ken Miles, telling him not to write bad stuff about Ford, and then died testing their next car. I know what a guy. Yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that. Yeah, I got a little teary eyed at the
3: end of it. First series on past gas. I I can't wait to
2: do more. Do more, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of fun doing this. I can't wait for you guys to hear the next one. Uh, if you haven't, ch- go check us out on YouTube and Facebook. Just search Donut Media. That'll be all of our stuff. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Donut Media. Follow me on Instagram at Pumphrey. Follow Nolan at Nolan J. Sykes. Thank you. We also
3: have a subreddit on Reddit. Oh, um, yeah. r slash uh, Media. I think we're going to be having podcast discussions every episode. That's my Oh, favorite. yeah,
2: yeah. No one will go in there yeah. and answer your question.
3: Yeah, we could do that too.
2: Uh, if you want to buy donut merch, go to donatemedia.com. There's also a link there uh, if you want to host a show or like work for us. That could be
3: cool. Uh, thank you. Seriously, thank you so much for watching. Uh, see you next time. Bye.
2: Bye. Angie has made
1: it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home,